Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons history podcast. You're listening to episode 5, Bart, the first McDonald's in Moscow. Hey, hey, listeners. I'm Gareth Hirons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus, the Simpsons of modern history, together at last. In each edition, we'll discuss an episode of The Simpsons and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the US. You'll go where we go. Bully who we bully. Bleed the blood of the people whose blood we bleed. Nice. (laughs) And today I'll be talking about Season 1, Episode 5, Bart the General. And I will be talking about the first McDonald's in Moscow, which opened on January the 31st, 1990, just a few days before Bart the General first aired. Yes, as I've completely forgotten to state the air date, as I usually do in these, (laughs) which is the 4th of February, 1990. Lovely stuff. But first, I need to go back and correct something from last episode, because shame on me, I went and gone and done a flag wrong. Oh, of all things. Yes, yes. So so for those that don't know me, I am a massive flag nerd. And we were telling the story about Manuel Noriega, the former military dictator of Panama, the former maximum leader. And in the process of telling that story, I described the flag of Panama. I said that it had two stars in the top left and bottom right corner to represent the two continents, North and South America. And it had two coloured fields to represent the oceans. And the Flag Institute had a World Cup of Flags, which Panama won. And whilst I was on Twitter, I tweeted at them, you should vote for the Flag of Panama to win the World Cup of Flags because of what it represents. And I just gave that description. And I got pointed in the right direction by a few Panamanians saying, no, 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 I'm afraid it's much more boring than that. All it is is that there were liberals and conservatives in Panama and they reached a peace. So it's just one colour for each of them and white for peace between them. So really, really quite a boring explanation, I think you'll find. So two things to say on that. First, I preferred your explanation. So I'm just, I'm just going to believe that that's true from now on. Uh, and secondly, it should still have won the World Cup of Flags because it's an excellent flag. It is, it is. But what annoyed me is that I had that misconception since I was a kid. So I, I would have seen that flag design when I was a child and gone, oh yeah, that's what it means. Because I, I, I was a precocious child. I knew about things like the <laughs> Panama Canal and where Panama was. But what has happened, which is a, which is a long, long shot, but it would be cool if it did. Uh, one of the people who corrected me said that they were going to write to the Panamanian government and say that that should be the explanation for the Panama flag. <laughs> so if I could get the meaning of the flag of Panama changed, that would be amazing. You heard it here first, people. Retrospecticus changing the world and rewriting history. Well, yeah. Rewrite, rewriting flag definitions anyway. Yeah, yeah. Okay, shall we talk Simpsons? Go for it. Right, so, season one, episode five, production number 7G05. Again, I promise you this will get interesting at some stage, but it's... There's uh, one thing we haven't mentioned about 7G. Oh, yeah? It's the sector that Homer works in in the power plant. It is, of course. Sector uh, Siebengruben when the uh, Germans take over. Ah, it's, of course. Uh, yes. Um, so there we go. So, yeah, as I said before, title is Bart the General. The air date was the 
4th of February 1990, I know what you're all asking. Gareth, what was the UK number one at that stage? Well, unfortunately, it was still nothing compares to you. Uh, so I decided to have a look a bit further down the uh, charts, and uh, I'll just pause to note Faith No More and The Cramps have both scraped into the top 40. Uh, and Phil Collins was at number seven with I Wish It Would Rain Down. As my friend Tim Worthington would note, what other way does it ever rain? <laughs> But I'm going to I'm going to dwell on uh, the track at number two, which I think is probably appropriate, uh, which is "Get Up Before the Night Is Over" by Technotronic, featuring Yarkid K. That sounds like some Acid House or something like that. It was very very nineties. I think right. it's the best way to put it. Very early nineties. So Technotronic were a Belgian electronic project. Don't know why I put such emphasis on Belgian there. But, uh, there we go. Uh, which I guess we now class it as EDM, electronic dance music these days. Uh, this was their breakthrough and biggest hit. Now, returning to Tim for a minute, me and him recorded an episode of his excellent podcast, Looks Unfamiliar, last Saturday. And that should be out soon. Cheap plug, cheap plug. But um, I took the opportunity to ask him about Yarkid K, the guest vocalist, um, because I was sure I'd heard the name in other contexts, but I had no idea... Uh, when and how. And he told me that Yarkid K was responsible for songs in not one, but two Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle films. <laughs> That's awesome. Providing, well, yeah, one of them is awesome for the oh. second film, Awesome Brackets, You Are My Hero. Wow. And for the first film, Spin That Wheel Brackets, Turtles Get Real, close brackets. Wow, that's something. <laughs> so there we go. Um, but not the turtle power, not the most famous No, one. no, that, that was um, partners in crime with a K and a Y, just in case you should actually mistake them for criminals. <laughs> okay. Um, there, it's worth noting that there's a, a model, uh, a fashion model called Feli Kalingi in the video that everyone thought was the singer. It was one of those sort of early 90s uh, switcheroos with oh, lip syncing. Yes. And as soon as I heard about lip syncing, I looked up Millie Vanilli. Because regardless of who sung it, Girl You Know It's True was a jam. But unfortunately, we've missed them. So they, they, they were pre-Simpsons. Ah, uh, right. Okay. Um, but there we go. I've, I've banged on about music for far too long, so let's get <laughs> back, back onto the show. Uh, the US viewership, Nielsen rating of 14.3, 31st place on the weekly ratings and the highest rated show on Fox that week, which gives you a sort of a picture of how, where Fox were in the hierarchy at that stage. So, well, you know, their top show only comes 31st. Mm, yes. Behind the other major networks, I'm guessing ABC and NBC at that time. Chalkboard and couch gag, there weren't any. The episode ran along, so we, when we zoom into the school in the opening, so you got to get the whole The Simpsons bit, mm-hmm. it zoom, zooms into the schools if we were going to see Bart at the chalkboard, but we don't. We simply cut to the house and into the oven, wherein Lisa Simpson is baking cupcakes for her teacher, leading to accusations of grade grubbing from Bart. She even baked one for Otto and eventually shares with Bart, but as soon as they're off the bus, a bully steals the box of cupcakes. Fresh off his cupcake, Bart stands up for Lisa, but is warned that the bully is a friend of Nelson Muntz, who intervenes in the resultant brawl. Bart makes Nelson bleed his own blood, which is unheard of, and despite Bart's attempt to get out of it, he's getting got after school. Bart daydreams of his demise at the hands of a giant Nelson, and having eschewed the chance to tell Principal Skinner and had his legend inflated over lunchtime, Bart has absolutely no choice but to meet Nelson at the flagpole at 3.15. And when he does, he is beaten and thrown in a garbage can, with the promise of more beatings to come. Homer is quick to dry Bart's tears, albeit with a hairdryer in an iconic early scene, <laughs> but also reiterates that the code of the schoolyard prevents him from telling his teachers. Excellent parenting from Homer oh, there, the as morals, usual. The morals. <laughs> After rejecting Marge's non-violent suggestions, Homer takes it upon himself to train Bart to fight dirty 
including getting him right in the family jewels. That's quite a that's quite a thing to say for an animation from the early nineties. That's that's partly aimed at kids. Yes, yes. The well, phrase "family jewels" getting in there. We'll actually come back to that in a bit. So. Uh, oh, okay. I was about to say, hold your family jewels, but that's probably right. not, the, not the way to uh, go there. Uh, none of this works, and Bart rolls home a Vic garbage can once more, whereupon Lisa suggests getting the advice of the toughest Simpson alive, Grandpa. Grandpa talks a big game, but is immediately bullied out of his newspaper by a friend, so decides to call in a consult from Herman, a military antique salesman who lost an arm in a school bus accident. He is a nut job, but exactly the man for this nutty job. And after Bart rallies his troops and we sit through predictable references to popular army films, Herman's strategy of carpet bombing with water balloons succeeds, a treaty is signed, and that's, that's it, really. There's not all that much to the end of the, end of the episode. Yeah, just a um, bit of action. We then get a piece to camera, uh, which is a very unusual way to, to end an episode of The Simpsons, in which Bart tells us that there are no good wars with the following exceptions. The American Revolution, World War II and the Star Wars trilogy, which immediately ages it, as there was only one Star Wars trilogy at that stage. Oh, yeah, but there's so much packed into that sentence. <laughs> okay, well, oh, well, that sentence, Bart saying, there are no good wars apart from the American Revolution, World War II, and Star Wars trilogy. So, you know, as far as I'm concerned, there isn't really a good war anyway, but I just think it's so weird that they chose World War II. I mean, American Revolution... If that didn't happen, there'd be no United States. So, fine. They can have that one. But World War Two, World War Two was a terrible war. I Absolutely. Can't, I can't remember the exact casualties, but it's something like 50 million people died in various ways. You had about 24 million Soviets, 8 million Germans. And this is just off the top of my head, so I could well be wrong. But I think it's about half a million Brits and about half a million Americans. And there's one thing that I always want to talk about when it comes to Americans and the Second World War, and it's the atomic bombings of Japan at the end. Because I know we're talking about Simpsons episode, but the moral conundrum of it still remains to this day. I mean, the argument for it is that they're called mercy bombs. Because the idea is, if they weren't dropped, then America would have had to have led an invasion of mainland Japan. And the argument was that the Japanese soldiers in places like Iwo Jima, Midway, Okinawa, they fought ferociously because it was completely against the Japanese military code to surrender. So the argument was, right, well, if they're fighting this hard over a few tiny islands in the Pacific, then how on earth are they going to fight when we attack the mainland? Mm. So... The decision was made to bomb Hiroshima first, and that killed tens of thousands of people. And then there was a, and, and this is a, something I have a real problem with. There was then a rush to get the second bomb out before the Japanese could surrender. So I think it was just three days after Hiroshima was bombed, they bombed Nagasaki, and again and again killed tens of thousands of people. And that's what got the Japanese to surrender. But when you've got that on your conscience, you know, killing tens of thousands of people in... Some people would have died very, very quickly. Others would have had, you know, a very slow, lingering, horrible deaths due to radiation poisoning, all that sort of thing. But yeah, to then have a cultural icon sitting on a desk saying that the Second World War was a good war. No, Bart, you're wrong. 
I, Sorry, I, th- I think really the only way to justify the comment is it, it is as a child's comment, essentially. Um, Bart will be more familiar with popular culture featuring World War II than the, the war itself, uh, as he essentially doesn't study. That's true. So, you know, there, there is that. It's, it's, you know, when you have to tie yourself in a narrative not like that to, to justify <laughs> it, though, uh, yes. I think you're right on that one. Yeah. And it wouldn't exactly have been a, a stretch to say there are only two good wars, the American Revolution and the Star Wars trilogy. Well, yeah, I suppose so. For some reason, when I was watching this episode, I thought he said the Vietnam War, but he doesn't. So I've just completely, I've completely made that up. I completely missed that it didn't have... A couch gag or a chalkboard gag, either. I, th- I think I think my brain just sort of assumed that they'd be there. Yeah, it's easy unless it's pointed out because the the, the whole reason I, I actually re rewatched the the intro of it when uh, a source that I was uh, researching from said that there was no couch gag or or chalkboard gag, and much like yourself, I missed it entirely. Yeah. I, I missed that it was missing. Yeah, so yeah. such a, a big part of it uh, is it. So. And, and also, the couch gags and the chalkboard gags weren't exactly memorable. Not the, at that stage, no. But by, by this point. So if they're not there, you just brush over them. It's fine. I think, I think the next episode is one of the ones where uh, the couch gag is nothing happens. Right, yes. Um, You're expecting something to happen, and nothing happens, and that's the joke. Yes, yeah. which I, I always thought, if they were going to do that, they should have had it on Bart the Genius, which is the first one to have a couch gag. Yeah. So people people then think that the there is no couch gag. That's just part of the intro. And then when the gags start coming later, you know, it's... Uh, I don't know, that always seemed like a missed opportunity to me. Well, maybe. But anyway, we've uh, we spent a fair, fair bit of time on the couch gag that isn't there. Yes. Um, there's somebody that I do want to talk about in relation to this episode. Obviously, I, I haven't said that much about the episode itself because it's a bit... It's a bit meh for me, really. It's not, not a... Not a highlight by any means. Well, this one. Well, well, for me, it's it's a really difficult episode to watch because of the depiction of bullying. Yeah. Because I know that The Simpsons dealt with you know maybe more adult themes, themes that other shows weren't dealing with, stuff like bullying and depression. Oh, that's on a later episode. That, that that's on Moaningly. So that's my favourite episode of the first series. Yeah. Which is the next episode? So the depiction of bullying. When you see. Nelson beating up Bart. Obviously, it's cartoon violence, but it's not portrayed cartoonishly. You get the idea that Bart is really being hurt when Nelson hits him. Absolutely. It's a slight unfortunate pun, but it doesn't pull its punches in that respect. It's uh, it's depicted relatively... Other than literally rolling home all the way from school in a garbage can. Um, yeah. That, that's the only real cartoonish element to it. Yeah, yeah. And, and there's also a sort of you get a sort of feeling of helplessness on Bart's side. And if anyone's ever been bullied, what Bart goes through is, 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 is probably all, all too real. The idea of you know, have, having a bully, having someone who beats you up. And this isn't a confession, by the way. But, but to be in that situation and thinking that you, know, you can't do anything about it, it's, yeah, yeah, it's really unpleasant to watch and it's not at all funny. No, we we pointed out Homer's uh, bad parenting earlier in terms of, uh, but that is I, I'm given to believe the uh, the law of the the jungle, as it were, is that if this is if this is happening, one of the worst things you could do is go and tell an authority figure. Well, yeah, yeah, because because this goes back to one of the things that made The Simpsons stand out in the first place was that it didn't present 
an ideal of the American family. It presented a satire of the American family. So Homer Simpson telling Bart about the rule of the schoolyard and don't squeal and all of that sort of thing. It's horrible. It's comically horrible. But it's what happens. Yeah. Which, which, is, which is why people can relate to it. So, Tom, do you want to hear who wrote this episode? Yeah, go for it. Because there's actually quite a lot to say about this uh, iconic name in uh, Simpsons lore. John Schwartzwelder. Okay. So, settling folks. Mr. Schwartzwelder, probably shouldn't say that very often because I'm bound to trip over at some stage, but <laughs> Mr. Schwartzwelder was working in advertising when he submitted a joke to Late Night with David Letterman in 1983. He didn't leave a return address, but was tracked down via the library system and invited for an interview that has been described as, and I quote, one of the most spectacularly awful in history, during which he is said to have been smoking and drinking and described the state of television as all sh- Letterman passed on him, but he was hired by Saturday Night Live. And when sacked, he joined George A. Meyer and later John Vitti on a comedy scene called Army Man. And they all moved to The Simpsons, having been hired by Sam Simon. He is credited with writing 59 full episodes of The Simpsons, which is more than anybody else, and contributing to several others. With his last full episode, unfortunately, being season 15, episode 4, The Regina Monologues, featuring alleged war criminal Tony Blair when he was UK Prime Minister, as he obviously didn't have anything better to do, did he? No. Oh, that's the one where he just has a little cameo. And I think by season 15, the idea of a Simpsons celebrity guest was they would just appear. And there they are. There's famous person. Okay, bye. That's the joke. Yeah. This isn't like Phil Collins or Noel Edmonds or someone, though. It's Tony Blair, the Prime Minister of the UK. At the time, he was the Prime Minister mm. of the UK. I just think it's, it's inexcusable. Not, not of them to ask, but of him to accept and do it. And particularly at a time when, you know, he was under such scrutiny. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, oh, sorry, that, that one always gets my goats. Always, always gets my goat. Though he did also contribute to the Simpsons movie in 2007. Uh, that's Schwarzwelder, not Blair. Right, uh, well, well, as far as I know, you know, he might have done that as well. Schwarzwelder, just to be clear, was with the show until 2003. Although from 1994 onwards, he was no longer required to come to rewrite sessions and sent in his scripts from home instead. Some have said that this is because he was a heavy smoker and the building they wrote in brought in a no-smoking policy. Uh, but it's also worth noting that his scripts are said typically to have needed less rewriting than other writers' scripts. Oh, because he was so good. Yeah, yeah. He is described as a libertarian, <laughs> is apparently a gun rights activist, and has also been described as an anti-environmentalist. <laughs> Though it is worth noting that he's credited with episodes that extolled environmentalism to a certain extent, such as Two Cars in Every Garage and Three Eyes on Every Fish, Whacking Day and The Old Man and the Lisa. Um, oh, yeah. Which is the recycling one, if you remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. And he's also, just to add to this colourful picture, he's also reclusive to the extent that John Schwartzwelder was once rumoured to be a nom de plume for either a collaborative effort or writers that didn't want to be credited. <laughs> he has steadfastly refused to do DVD commentaries or media appearances. He now self-publishes absurdist novels, has finally given it and got a Twitter account which solely consists of excerpts from set novels. And possibly just to annoy him, he has been animated into or referenced in The Simpsons at least ten times, including as a recurring character that we'll learn about in a few minutes' time. <laughs> so I've mentioned some of the classic episodes that he's written, uh, but I just want to th- throw a few more at you okay. uh, for effect here. 
You only move twice. Oh yes, that's the one where they end up in uh, Terra Lake when they're running from Sideshow Bob. Oh, no, that one was Cape Fear. You only move twice is the one with Hank Scorpio. Ah, yes. Yes, yes. That is actually my favourite episode of The Simpsons. That is a great So John Schwarzwelder wrote my favourite episode. He also did Radioactive Man. Yeah, brilliant. Krusty Gets Cancelled. Yeah. Homer the Smithers. Um, Yes, I like that one. Perhaps unsurprisingly, given his gun nut status... The Cartridge Family, which is the episode that Sky banned in the UK for its gun references. Oh, isn't that the one where it's just exclusive gun stuff? And it's it's got quite a strong gun control safety message. It does, it? yeah. And um, also relevant as we're recording this during the World Cup, it features a soccer riot. Oh, yeah. Oh, the, the, uh, oh, the, the football memes. <laughs> the football memes around that episode that, that, that appeared during the World Cup. Yeah, the, the, the opening match, Russia and Saudi Arabia. <laughs> this match will determine who's the greatest human rights abuser in the world, Russia or Saudi Arabia. And of course, we're all hoping for a uh, Portugal-Mexico final so we can see all our favourite players. Yes. Ariaga, Ariaga 2, Barriaga, <laughs> and so forth. Even during the creative doldrums of seasons 10 to 13, he, he did write some of the better episodes. He did uh, The Wizard of Evergreen Terrace, which is the one where Homer becomes an inventor. Yeah, uh, throwback Ma- episode two. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Maximum Homer Drive, where he drives a truck across America for reasons. And I Am Furious Yellow, where he, he is Angry Dad, which is a web cartoon that Bart writes. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was re- that. That one's really dated. It has, yeah. Flash animations. It, it, it's not really its fault, if you see what I mean. So I'm, no. I'm, I'm not. I'm not willing to condemn the episode, but yeah, that got old fast. Yeah, yeah. Um, Very much sign of the times. Right. So there we go. John John Schwartzwelder. What a writer. I'd yeah. say what a guy. Yeah. But, you know. I love the. I love the fact that there's a conspiracy that he doesn't exist. Yeah. That's amazing. So um, we should talk about character debuts, and there's a there's a fair. Few of them this time. Yes. Firstly, Nelson Muntz. Mm-hmm. Originally seen here as one of Bart's major antagonists, though on a completely different level to Martin, who we've already talked about in the previous episode. Martin is Bart's opposite, whereas Nelson here is what Bart could become if he was less morally grounded, which is just a bully. Nelson yeah. is a person, in this episode anyway, is shown to be a person who just hurts people for the thrill of hurting people and to uh, take their possessions. He has been held back several grades, which explains his physical dominance over the rest of the fourth graders, and also why he's later accepted as part of a peer group with seemingly older bullies. Later episodes would actually add some depth here, so they started by giving Nelson a a troubled home life with an apparently alcoholic exotic dancer for a mother, and a father who went missing mid-series and also returned mid-series Due to an attack of his serious peanut allergy suffered whilst going to the store for a pack of smokes. It's a long story. We will get to it. This chaotic upbringing has left him to essentially fend for himself, which partially explains his thirst for other people's lunch money, as it's either that or tadpoles again. <laughs> uh, and then a second ongoing trope with Nelson more recently is that he's actually got hidden depths, as evidenced by his love of Huckleberries and Andy Williams. Oh yes, that's brilliant that. <laughs> and he's also always looked out for Lisa Simpson since the episode where they briefly dated, which was uh, Lisa's date with density. <laughs> he lives by a complex and unfathomable code which has led him to attack people for taking credit for other people's work and expresses <laughs> enthusiasm for tactical nuclear strikes on large aquatic mammals as you've got to nuke something. I love that. Like, that's amazing. And, uh, right, here we go. <clears throat> 
His signature cry of, ha ha. Oh, that was weak. I'm going to have to try for that again, I think. <laughs> that just sounded like a squeaky bike wheel to me. <laughs> his signature cry of, ha ha, has become a welcome punchline throughout the show's history. Yes. I'm going to regret that looking back, aren't I? <laughs> uh, there's also Nelson's goons, who appear to be referred to as the weasels in fan circles. Two almost identical characters, one of whom is black and one of whom is, well, Simpsons white, which is yellow. They're seldom seen after, and actually the only time I can remember is in Saturdays of Thunder, where they give Nelson a weapon before the boxcar race. They've largely been replaced by the more familiar bully roster of Jimbo, Dolph and Kearney, but they're not going to appear properly for three more episodes until the Telltale Head. So we'll get to those in a bit. There's also uh, Herman, surname Herman, but with two N's. He is the owner of a military antique shop with a missing arm, variously explained as having been torn off when he stuck it out of a school bus window or lost in a collision with an animal control van. That was actually meant to be a running gag, in that there would be a different explanation for how he lost his arm every time he appeared. Oh, I see. But the second time they did it, which involved his arm getting stuck in the ball return machine at a bowling alley, the joke got cut for time purposes. Yeah. And they just never returned to it. That's not that funny, is it? No, but I I kind of think that's a bit of a shame. It, it could have been funny, and it's like it was dropped without yeah. really without really continuing. But then again, Herman's not exactly a funny character, I suppose. Not really. In, in later appearances, his design was based on writer John Schwartzwelder. Although John Schwartzwelder has both arms, as far as I'm, well, if yeah. he exists, if he exists, yes, yeah. yes. Uh, and his voice is performed by Harry Shearer and modelled on then President George H. W. Bush. The character became much less sympathetic as time went on, with him running a counterfeit jeans ring out of the Simpsons' car hole in the Springfield Connection, and kidnapping Snake and Chief Wiggum for who knows what purpose, heavily implied to be rape, in a segment of 22 short films about Springfield that was patterned after Pulp Fiction. That's right, that's right. So the best you could say there is he was just acting like the character from Pulp Fiction that he was meant to be a stand-in for. That's right. And and they just about got away with family jewels, so they couldn't get away with anything too explicit in that scene. Exactly, exactly. Abraham Jebediah Grandpa Simpson II doesn't debut in this episode, having been both in the shorts and spotted in a minor capacity in previous episodes. But this is his debut as a pivotal character. However, I am going to leave a proper discussion of him for later episodes, uh, as I've already banged on a fair bit today, and we, we do eventually want to get to your bit. Fair enough. It would be remiss of me, however, to move on without noting that Grandpa's character is a lot more focused than he would become in later episodes. And we get an early glimpse of what I think is the underlying tragedy of Grandpa as a character. His glory days were in World War II. He's a very brave and shrewd military man who never really found a place in post-war society, except as an anachronism, seeing the values that he fought for get gradually eroded by wider society, and particularly his own wife and son, who become a hippie and a layabout, respectively. He's angrier in his first few appearances as well, as evidenced by his letter-writing and his general crabbiness. Which leads me to my favourite line, as spoken by Grandpa. I thought I was too old. I thought my time had passed. I thought I'd never hear the screams of pain or see the look of terror in a man's eyes. Thank heaven for children. (laughs) Oh, and finally, and this is definitely the last one, Homer's dad's friend, Jasper Beardley. Later to be known as Frostilicus after his amateur cryogenics experiment. Absolutely the go-to guy if you need to know what's a paddling. Jasper would later play a small but hilarious role in Who Shot Mr. Burns Part 2, but before and since has largely been a backup old person in Grandpa's. Yes, but... but but his his beard gives 
the animator something something to play with. Absolutely. So I, I remember the bit where he gets his beard caught in a pencil sharpener. Oh. And it, and it just goes in and in and until his chin is in. And you just think, there isn't any more beard. You're into chin now. <laughs> it's like Marge's hair, actually. Yeah. Which yeah. is, you know, is as much head or hair as is required for each separate scene. So I've got a few did-you-knows. Yep. According to the DVD commentary, I did say we'd be coming back to this, the censors had a problem with their use of one particular, quite innocent-sounding phrase, family jewels. Mm. And this is why Grandpa mentions it in his letter to all advertisers in this episode. (laughs) Now, Tom, I'm going to read you that letter. And at the end, there are three terms that he mentions. One of them we now know is family jewels. I want to see if you can remember the other two. Okay. Okay. So, dear advertisers, I am disgusted with the way old people are depicted on television. We are not all vibrant, fun-loving sex maniacs. Many of us are bitter, resentful individuals who remember the good old days when entertainment was bland and inoffensive. The following is a list of words I never want to hear on television again. Number one, something. Number two, something. Number three, family jewels. I think one of them's bra. It is. Number one is bra. It's got one, one out of two. And the other one is horny or something? It is. Yes. Is it? Yes. Yes, come on. Number one, bra. Number two, horny. Number three, family jewels. Yes, I'm genuinely happy about that. Excellent, excellent. A brief bit about Star Wars, mm-hmm. which we mentioned tangentially. Star Wars seems to exist in the Simpsons universe, as evidenced by Mark Hamill's turn as Luke Skywalker in Guys and Dolls, and a reference to, and this is a quote, the gay robots from Star Wars wrestling the Cylons at Bymon Sci-Fi Con, both of which happened in the episode Mared to the Mob, which is season 10, episode 9. But the Simpsons universe also contains the shockingly similar Galaxy Wars, which first appeared just after the Star Wars prequels started appearing and seemed to share fans' disappointment in them, featuring as it does a useless comic relief character named Jim Jam Bonks, and a long-awaited film that is largely a single debate in the Galactic Senate. Yes, yes, brilliant. In in, in a way, it's it, it's from an innocent time that episode before the Star Wars prequels, when the Star Wars trilogy was just a trilogy, and there were no specials. And there well, there was the holiday special. Oh yeah, yeah, that's, that's a good thing that to consign to history. <laughs> if you've never heard of the Star Wars holiday special, please don't look it up. There are some things best left untouched. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, this may shock you. I've got one final did you know, and it's actually, by my standards, a little bit highbrow. Oh. Brace yourself. Bart the General and a Seinfeld episode called The Tape were used in a Dartmouth College experiment to study brain activity in relation to humorous moments in television shows. Oh, yes, I've heard of it. The results were published in... Volume 21, Issue 3, that's the March 2004, as we all know, uh, issue of the academic journal Neuroimage. That's pages 1055 to 1060. It's an article called Neural Correlates of Humour Detection and Appreciation. I have the link if anyone wants to check it out, but it's behind a paywall. I'm not, I'm wow. not paying for it. So, uh, <laughs> so I've not actually been able to verify this next quote, so citation needed. I've gone yeah, to Wikipedia. Quite literally. Um, but apparently the researchers noted that during moments of humour detection, significant activation was noted in the left posterior middle temporal gyrus and left inferior frontal gyrus. Okay. I mean, that's pretty obvious, really. I don't know why they had to do a study to find that. Well, yeah, I could have yeah. told them that. <laughs> so there we go. Uh, I'm not as stupid as I look. 
uh, or at least I'm able to research things on Wikipedia. Well, you can you can say all the words. Absolutely, <laughs> most of the time. I mean, the, you know, with with severe editing. By Tom, <laughs> uh, so, Tom, sorry about that. Time for your bit. <laughs> okay, my bit. So, okay, so for my story, I'm going to be telling the story of how the international fast food chain McDonald's opened its doors in the capital of the Soviet Union. Its opening day was January the 31st, 1990, just four days before Bart the General first aired. First, a disclaimer. I think it's important to declare your biases when discussing history, so here is mine. I hate McDonald's. (laughs) Great start. I can't stand more or less everything about it. I'm old enough to remember the McLibel trial of 1996 and Super Size Me a few years after that. Not the most scientific film, Super Size Me, I have to say. I really don't like their history of corporate bullying and contribution to obesity, as well as their contributions to environmental destruction. This is my personal opinion. Uh, Go out and buy McDonald's, it's great. Uh, But but on top of that, I think their food is awful. Because I I look at the patty of the McDonald's burger and I see see how thin it is. I just go, is that it? Because... Because, you know, I don't, I don't know about you, but but I like cooking and I make my own burgers from time to time. And it is so easy. Yeah. Just very, very, very simple. And, you know, to see the food come out and it's all mass produced and, you know, really, really thin. It, it, it just looks horrible. I think um, kind of the main draw for me with McDonald's is the breakfast. And I don't know whether it's just a, a product of where I live. There never seems to be anywhere open early enough. I, I'm a bit of an early bird, like to get to work, you know, as early as I possibly can. Mm-hmm. So the fact that there's a 24-hour McDonald's around the corner just makes it quite um, convenient for that kind of thing. Fair enough. Fair I'm enough. always getting vouchers through my door and that kind of thing. But <laughs> you're absolutely right about the thinness of the of the burgers. And have you noticed the huge disparity between the photos of said burgers and the burgers you actually receive if you order them? Oh, of course. So of course. Oh, and don't get me started on their adverts. They're sort of public information campaigns of uh, oh this kid has heard bad things about chicken McNuggets let's talk to a food scientist and oh they're made of 100% chicken breast meat hooray are you going to show us where the chickens are from are you going to show us in what conditions the chickens are brought up in yeah well, well there we are but anyway but anyway they, they were big enough to get into Moscow in 1990 yes absolutely so I mean having said all that you can't deny the cultural importance of McDonald's so they've been around since 1940 and these days they serve 69 million people a day in over 100 countries worldwide. I mean, 69 million, that's roughly the population of Thailand. Oof. Although we yeah. should note it isn't the population of Thailand. It's not like everybody in Thailand buys no. McDonald's every day. No, no, no. But, but it's like, imagine having an organisation that large that they feed the population of Thailand every day. It's, it's, it's amazing. So, of course, you know, a capitalist institution opening up in the heart of the Soviet Union, it's a big deal. So I've dealt with my bias against McDonald's, so now let's go on to the story. And as I go, I'm going to try and dispel a few preconceptions that people might have about it. So here's the first. So preconception number one is the Moscow McDonald's was only allowed to open because of Mikhail Gorbachev's perestroika, when in fact the talks to open the McDonald's started in 1976. Oh, You know, so about ten years before Gorbachev. When the founder of McDonald's Canada, George Cohen, C-O-H-O-N, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, he invited the Soviet delegation to the 1976 Montreal Olympics to see a McDonald's in action. And apparently they were very impressed. 
and were quite open to the idea of opening a McDonald's in Moscow. I can imagine that something as efficient as a McDonald's would, would appeal to a Soviet mindset. I suppose so, I suppose so. So, like I say, it might come as a surprise because it's always ten years before Gorbachev comes to power and implements the economic reforms that were known as perestroika. According to Cohen, one of the reasons it took so long to open was because of the changes of the Soviet leadership. I'm just going to give a little rundown of Soviet leaders. For a country of such historical importance, the Soviet Union had surprisingly few leaders. So the first, of course, was Vladimir Lenin. I drove past a mural of him on a street in Liverpool on the way here. So uh, Yeah, that's just rather cool for mine, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. So he took charge when the Soviet Union was founded in 1922. And after he died in 1924, the notorious Joseph Stalin rose to power. And he held power until his death in 1953. I mean, have you seen the film The Death of Stalin? No, but I really should. Oh, it's, it's, it's absolutely fantastic. It, it's basically my perfect film. Because it's a film directed by Armando Inucci and about what happened after Stalin died, about the power struggle between all the different players involved. It's really, really funny. It's, it, it's got the tagline, A Comedy of Terrors. After the death of Stalin, his deputy, George Malenkov, officially succeeded Stalin. He was outmaneuvered and replaced by Nikita Khrushchev. Khrushchev held power until 1964 when he was overthrown by Leonid Brezhnev, you know, the guy with the big eyebrows. Yes. I love that. If I say, you know, going through the Soviet leaders, guy with the big eyebrows. Oh yeah, Brezhnev. Big eyebrows. That's all anyone ever thinks of Brezhnev. So Brezhnev was still in power when 1976 rolled around, and he was still there when he died in 1982. Now after that, the USSR had what you might call a succession crisis. So Brezhnev was replaced by former KGB head Yuri Andropov, who lasted just 15 months before he passed away. He was followed by Konstantin Chernenko, who was already in poor health, so I think he had emphysema and bronchitis and whatever else, and he died after just 13 months in the job. May I make a brief interjection at this stage about Andropov and Chernenko? Yes. I became aware of their existence at all last year when I was researching Gorbachev for my blog that I was doing about The Simpsons at the time, because I was doing an episode... um, Because I was doing an article on Two Bad Neighbours, which is the President Bush Moves In episode in which Gorbachev appears. Mm. I made a note to try and remember their names so that I could (laughs) impress people with my knowledge later on. And the event that I went to later on was the Merseyside Skeptic Society Christmas Quiz. Ah, yeah. Compiled by one Tom Williamson. That's right. Where one of the questions was, who were the two interim leaders of the Soviet Union between Brezhnev and Gorbachev? And could I remember their names? No. This fact I'd learned not three hours earlier. There you go. And I recall from memory Bra and Horny from what Grandpa Simpson says. (laughs) That's why we make such a great team. Stunning, stunning. So if you can imagine, it's difficult enough to do business in the Soviet Union anyway. And if you're trying to do like an international project and the leaders keep dying on you, it's kind (laughs) of, it's kind of, it kind of makes things a lot trickier. So on to the next thing I want to dispel. The idea that it was being done to take money out of the Soviet Union. So, you know, capitalist thing to do drop into another country, sell someone some sort of product, take all the money out of the country again. In fact, it was a joint venture between the Soviet government and McDonald's Canada. Ah. So the Canadian partnership, with the Soviets owning 51% of the business and McDonald's 49%. The main catch for McDonald's was that the profits were in rubles, 
and they couldn't be taken outside of the Soviet Union. So if McDonald's wanted to invest their profits, they had to do it inside the Soviet Union. So you know, build more McDonald's, basically. Right. So they, they, they quite literally couldn't have taken it out of the country. That's right. That's right. Not that that was a problem for long, of course, because uh, the Soviet Union would last uh, nearly another two years, a bit less than that. So on to logistics. When you think about McDonald's products, say a Big Mac and fries, well, what do you need for those? Well, first off, you need beef. Now, that the Soviets could do. There were shortages, but enough to get by. Then you need bread for the buns. Again, that was fine. No problem with bread. Then you need potatoes for the fries. Now, that was a problem. Because although the Soviets had plenty of potatoes, the varieties they had were too small for French fries. They were sort of like just a bit bigger than a golf ball. Oh, okay. So McDonald's had to bring in seeds for their own russet potatoes, with the p- potato fact. I, li- I like the odd potato facts. I used to work in produce in Sainsbury's. Absolutely. In fact, I, th- I think you should try and get more potato facts into this podcast. <laughs> right. If you possibly can. Okay. Just... I haven't got any flag facts, I'm afraid. <laughs> so they had to have their own farms, you know, which was something that would, would have brought in employment. Of course, all of this production needed a factory. And for the first time in their history, McDonald's decided to put everything under one roof. And the factory they built was the size of three football pitches. And it made everything for the restaurant. So after training their staff up in Western-style service, which included, which included practising with cardboard because of food shortages. So, you know, they didn't... They'd go, right, cardboard bun, cardboard lettuce, cardboard burger. Oh. Just practising putting everything together. Okay. So after all that training, everything was ready for the grand opening. And at this point, I want to address another possible misconception... That the restaurant was a small affair, a kind of sort of dip your toe in the water situation. And it was not. This was, as we say in Norfolk, hooge. It had 700 seats inside and 200 seats outside. Biggest in the world. Before it even opened, people were queuing round the block to get their first taste of American-style fast food. The wait was up to six hours. And despite all of this, the first Moscow McDonald's on Pushkin Square served approximately 30,000 people on its first day. Oh, wow. Uh, isn't that just stunning? Because, because if you think about what the Soviet Union was going through at, at the time, it wouldn't have had anything like that, you know, in, food, out. And people weren't put off by the prices. So at the time, a Big Mac cost three rubles and 50 kopecks, with the average monthly salary being 150 rubles. Oh, okay. So, so if you imagine taking a family of four out to McDonald's and you all have Big Macs, then, you know, that's 10% of your monthly salary gone. The McDonald's on Pushkin Square is still there today, and it's seen huge political changes in Russia. The Soviet Union itself ceased to be on December 25th, 1991, but we'll get to that in a later episode. Following the breakup, Russia carried on as the Russian Federation. So far, it's only known two leaders, Boris Yeltsin and Vladimir Putin, who has led Russia in some capacity since the year 2000. So we're into 2018 now. So Putin's been around for more or less as long as Brezhnev. Good Lord. I, I never realised that. Yeah. Looking yeah. back, that must be the case. Yeah. I, it just seems shorter somehow. Mm. Well, maybe, maybe he didn't come to sort of international prominence for a few years. It's, uh... Well, what happened, he, his presidency was sort of interrupted because under the Russian constitution at the time, because they've changed it now... But at the time, you could only be president for a maximum of, of four years and be president for two consecutive terms. But it, did, but it doesn't say you're president for two terms and that's it. So what he did was he had his two terms as, as president and then he 
handed over to a guy called Dmitry Medvedev, who was his prime minister. Right, yes. So Medvedev became president and he made Putin his prime minister. So Putin's still up there, he's still in the top job. And then when the next election rolled around, uh, they changed the constitution. So that makes the terms six years. And Putin won the election in 2012 and they've just had one in 2018. So if all goes to plan, Putin will be in power until 2024, which means he will have been in power for 24 years. And I imagine he's already thinking how he can get back in for another uh, 24 after that. Well, quite possibly, quite possibly. So there's some Putin facts. Not as good as potato facts. No, no, no. Uh, Hopefully no one from the Russian security services are listening. (laughs) I I didn't say anything bad. I didn't say anything about... Didn't say anything about Chechnya or Crimea or anything like that. Having said that, before I finish up, I want to talk about something that I find quite interesting, and it's the Golden Archer's Theory of Conflict Prevention. You heard of this? No, I haven't heard of this. Oh, okay. It's an idea proposed by a guy called Thomas Friedman in 1996, and it's very simple, that no two countries that have a McDonald's will go to war with each other. Oh, The idea being that if a country is economically advanced enough to sustain a McDonald's, it won't be so interested in going to war with its neighbours. As we've already seen, keeping a McDonald's going is a huge operation. However, this idea was kind of proved wrong in 2014 when Russia annexed Crimea, which was then part of Ukraine, and Ukraine had McDonald's by then. Oh, okay. So even so, I I think it's a pretty interesting idea. Yeah, yeah, and you could always argue for there being a, a pretty unique socio-political situation in, in Russia, Ukraine, the former Soviet Union. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I don't think that's been entirely disproved with that one. No, I suppose not. I suppose not. Because oh, we, we can't really get into the details of the uh, annexation of Crimea now. Well, no, because we'll need that for you know an ep- uh, a season 27 episode or yes. something like that. Yes, so, I think know, so. I think so. Don't want to waste the big guns early. So. Absolutely. And with that, I think we're just about done. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can tweet at us at underscore retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore because we wish we could and can't. <laughs> uh, or you can email us at podcast at retrospecticus.org. And we are also on all major podcasting platforms, including iTunes. So if you want, why not go to iTunes and leave us a nice review? That'll make us feel happy. We love it when you do that. Oh, and uh, just a couple more uh, cheap plugs. Obviously, listen to the looks unfamiliar, not just the ones I'm on. uh, And go and read Atomic Salpus because my blog's getting lonely. And if you want to check out my stuff, I am Skeptic Canary. And I'm sort of Skeptic Canary on everything. So you'll find me there. Fantastic. Right. That being said, it's a goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. We've gone two Ronnies all of a sudden for some reason. Oh, God, yeah. I don't like that. Let's not do that again. (laughs) Goodbye, everyone. Bye. Bye.